Welcome to Momentum Church. Everybody, good morning. Good morning. Man, I can tell you all got the winter frost message to show up at the second service. Amen. This is a good group. Shout praise Jesus. Dude, you're a bunch of Satanists. My gosh. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Come on. Okay, we'll work on that. <laughs> no, it's good to be with you. you know what? I, I want to take a second and I want to welcome those who are online with us today. It's so good having you guys. And I will say one thing about our services through this COVID season. Man, I, I don't know about y'all, I miss the meet and greet after the announcements, you know? And just that little bit, and you know, I'm an extrovert. Every introvert in the house is like, keep COVID, <laughs> right? But I do, I miss that time, and so, but, um, but it is what it is, and part of that, we have people watching online, literally all around the country, and I want to give you a quick testimony. Last week, as we were in services, and the Lord laid on Pastor Brantley's heart to pray for specific needs, a lady in Ohio is a teacher, and she has invited other teachers to her home that don't go to church. And last Sunday, they started their first time gathering for, I don't know what you would call it, I guess, house church, and, and they were all there watching the service. And then when Brantley said that, this woman raised her hand, because she had a prayer need. Remember we said momentum folk pray for each other? And so she raised her hand, and the lady's homeowner, the lady that owns a home, went over and laid her hand on her back and prayed for that woman. Man, that's cool. And so I just want you to know, if you're watching right now from that house, this church loves you. Can you say we love them with a big applause? Man. That's just so, so neat to hear that kind of testimony. And um, this is our third week in the John series, and I'm excited to bring this word to you. This is one of those things where just week to week, I'm always going to be excited to bring the word to you because these are things we've been working on for months in study and preparation. And so, ah, can't wait. Last week, we looked at how John began to speak of his friend Jesus. Man, I hope your friendship with Jesus gets like John's, you know, where you can't help but just have his life pour in and out of you. And so all those 50 years where he's waiting to write, finally, Finally, he goes to write, and we saw he just went like crazy town telling us all about who Jesus is. And then he had a parenthetical insert, and he said something about John the Baptist. It just seems so out of, out of place. He said, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And so John the apostle, the writer, writes a parenthetical insert about John the Baptist who bears witness with who Jesus is. And then after the passage of verse 18 that we finished with last week, we jump on to 19. So that's where we're headed today. And when we jump into 19, we start to see the person of John. And so today we're going to be looking at John 19 through verse 28. Are y'all ready? You like that more than Jesus. I don't, I don't get it. I don't know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And so let me tell you a little bit about who John is before we jump into the scripture today. And I will tell you right now, in the first service, my tongue would stick to the side of my cheek. My lip would stick to my... I, Pastor Brand, uh, Jared, he said, he goes, Ross, you were going... I was like, dip. <laughs> no. But it was just, I mean, whatever the fast is doing to me, I keep, my tongue is just sticking. So you're going to have to have patience with me. And along those lines, how many ready for tonight? Yeah. 
Hallelujah. Amen. But um, just have patience with that. It's driving me nuts. But the father of John the Baptist was a man by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah. And he was a priest. And his wife was Elizabeth. And she was Mary's first cousin, making John the Baptist second cousins to Jesus. I told you that a couple weeks ago. Can you imagine? In the first service, my, my nephew is here. My great nephew and my two littles, they get along tremendously. But can you imagine my, my, my great nephew, Preston? He's about this big and my, my my son mac you know that like like 30 years from now mac's like hey preston i'm the messiah you know that didn't quite happen that way literally the revelation of jesus came to john the revelation of the spirit came to john and he knew it when it was time to know it but that's still the kid that he used to run the creeks with. That's still the kid that he grew up playing with. I don't know if Jesus ever bopped him in the eye. I'd like to think not. I, I, that's, that sounds blasphemous. We just, let's just stop that. Okay. So, but he was a kid like any other kid. I really do believe that, you know. And I just can't imagine Preston and Mac, 30 years later, you know, Preston saying, Behold, the land, you know, it, this is a God thing. This is, shows so much of his spirit and his flesh, his flesh tied to Zechariah and his mother Elizabeth and this birth taking place, and his spirit, God's just putting that within John the Baptist in that moment to see something spiritual and to say, behold the Lamb of God. I'm not preaching on that scripture till next Sunday. I just can't wait. So there you go. Behold the Lamb of God. Mm, that's good stuff. I can't wait for next week. But here's the thing about this. They were barren for a long time. These were old folks. They could not have children, and God gave them John the Baptist, you know? God gave it to Elizabeth. And when Jesus was in the womb of Mary, and they came close to each other in proximity, the Holy Ghost got all pulled on, on Mary's, or Elizabeth's belly, I guess, and the baby leaped in her womb. Something was going on there, you know? There was something about Jesus that made John leap in the womb, and there was something about Jesus that that day, I, can't, I don't know why I'm not preaching on this, it should be next week's Sunday sermon, but something about Jesus that made John leap up and say, behold the Lamb of God. Man, this is a powerful connection between these two cousins. Not just a physical, but a spiritual connection that's taking place here. And, and, and I love the story of how the baby came to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. We're not going to go deep into it, but I'll just say this. When it came to naming John the Baptist, and that's not what his mom called him. You guys know that, right? Come here, John Baptist. <laughs> you know, When it came to naming him, they were going to name him something else. God shut Zechariah's mouth up until in his spirit he would do what he was supposed to do in obedience and name the boy what he's supposed to name him. And there's wives all in this room going, oh, I need that anointing on my husband. You know what I mean? But that's what, that, oh, so cool. So let me go a little bit further. So he grows up, becomes a man, and it becomes what, what most people would say is an Essene. E, if you're taking notes, E-S-S-E-N-E. -E. And if, you, if you're new with us, man, we are starting to bring our Bibles and our notebooks. Old school, all right? Just while we're studying in John, and we'll study in John all year, and we're going to weave five other series throughout John. But anytime we jump into John, man, I'd love to see those Bibles and those notebooks if we can. And so um, um, the Essenes, they were an ancient Jewish ascetic group that would gather together. Many of them would live in the wilderness, like John did. And they were actually the ones that were responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, 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 the generations would go by, and they would transcribe, and most people believe that the Dead Sea Scrolls are the library of the Essenes that lived in that region. 
What's amazing is those Dead Sea Scrolls date back to 300 B.C. And when they would take those fragments, those scriptures, many, many full parts of the Torah, the Old Testament, parts of the Old Testament, um, when they would take those scriptures and they would find other passages in other areas, they would be the same. The God that we serve has the power to preserve his word. Amen? And I'm a geek on things like that. I love history and stuff. And so that just is just amazing to me. But that's who John was. And he was a bit weird. <laughs> I mean, a lot weird. So, you know, um, in Matthew 3, 4, it says that he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. This is like the Mad Max of ministry is what he's like. And he's eating bugs, and he's, he's all... I mean, if you're eating bugs and honey, you are hyper. You are like, woo! I just picture John being this wild man showing up on the scene, telling people to repent, preaching the word, preaching the kingdom, making the way for, for Jesus to come. And, and, and that's what his diet was. And so what I want us to do, I want to stand to our feet because that, that's who John was. And I want to see this narrative because I believe there's some things we can learn from John and how he approached life in regards to humility and the power and platform of humility. And I also can see the call, the challenge, what John would preach and speak out in regards to repentance, the power of repentance. Everybody say the power of humility. The power of repentance. Amen. As we stand, we're standing because we honor the word around here. So in the beginning was the word. Nope, nope, nope. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked, What then are you, Elijah? And he said, Nope, I'm not. Are you the prophet? That's speaking of Moses. And he answered, No. So they said, Well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who have sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Father, in the name of Jesus, help me bring forth this word that we might walk in humility and understand what that looks like and how God uses it to position us for the kingdom and that we might have hearts turned towards you in living repentance. Not, not just a time of repentance, but daily turning toward you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have your seat. You can have your seat. So in verse... 19, and we're just going to walk down through this today. Is that okay with you? I hope you're enjoying that, that, that. So in verse 19, it says, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask who you are. The, the Sanhedrin is this governing body that has the Pharisees and the Sadducees in it, and many of the, the rabbis and people like that are all part of this group. And with that, they're seeing something happen because this bug-eating, hypo, you know, all hopped up on sugar, this, this preacher, he is there preaching, and tons of people are gathering. I mean, just so many are coming to hear this word. Here's what's crazy. You know it's God because he's preaching a message of repentance, you don't build churches on messages of repentance, at least not in the seeker-friendly movement. Amen? 
You just want to appease everybody, make them feel happy, right? Cotton candy and rainbows and sugar and no, this man's preaching repentance and he's drawing a crowd. Why? Because these people are hungry for change. They're hungry for something different. They've seen the religious system, and they don't want to be a part of it. They want to be a part of the life-giving moving of the Holy Ghost, amen, the moving of the Holy Spirit, God doing things in their life. And they're seeing this, this new preacher telling them a new message. And it was a message of repentance. Man, they, they, they didn't like this, these Pharisees. So they send the Pharisees to come and check out what is going on to take an answer back. And he confessed, verse 20 and 21, he confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. All right, I'm going to stop there. I am not the Christ. Does that sound similar to something Jesus said? When they said, who are you? What did Jesus say? I am. Is that neat? Jesus goes, I am the I am. The ultimate source of everything is what he was saying. I am the I am. And John's confession, I don't want it to be lost upon us. I believe it's an implied contrast with Jesus' confession where John is saying, I am not the Messiah, but I know who is. Jesus is the Messiah. I'm not. Amen? In Malachi 5, verse 6, we're going to see the reason why the next question is, what then? Are you Elijah? Well, here's the reason why they asked that. In verse 5 of Malachi 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. I mean, that sounds like repentance, right? That sounds a little like, like John the Baptist. Lest I come and strike the Lamb with a decree of utter destruction. Now, when that scripture ends, that's the last verse of the Old Testament. And when that scripture ends... People will call it the intertestamental period. People living at the time didn't. They just knew it was a time where we were not hearing the voice of revelation from God. We weren't hearing the voice of prophecy. We, for 300 years, the voice of prophecy was silent in the nation. There wasn't a prophet one that God was using. Can you imagine? How many prayed for a while and you just felt like the ceiling was brass? Think how hungry a people would be if 300 years. I just need a word from you, Lord. I just, I just need to hear from you. And the first prophet to come, the word is repentance. Are you kidding me? That's kind of like what you ended with in the Old Testament. You mean the, the message hasn't changed? You just keep haranguing on this, that we're supposed to turn to God, turn to God, turn to God? And it's like God's like, yes! It's exactly what you're supposed to do. And not once, but daily and daily and daily and daily. Can't get away from it. I've said before, if God wants you over the mountain and you won't go over it, he'll keep you going around it till you do. So the word comes through John. It's so similar to the Old Testament prophets. So, but they think he's Elijah. And then, and then they ask, are you Moses? And he tells them, no, I'm not Moses. Moses, man, that's the one that brought them out of Egypt and bondage and brought them to the promised land for Joshua to lead them in to what God had for them. So he says, no, I'm not, I'm not Moses. Can I tell you what was going on here? John was given the invitation to be the man. I'm serious. Yeah, I'm Elijah. Look at the crowds. Think what the crowds would have turned into if he would have said, yes, I'm Elijah. And so they give him this opportunity. 
But he refused it. They give him a second opportunity. Well, then maybe Moses? Literally, two times, he could have been the man. There was other messiahs that had come through, people that labeled themselves as messiahs. Lived amazing lives, amazing things that would happen, and then they would die. Well, I guess that's not the Messiah. John wasn't going to do that. John knew what his calling was, but this invite for him to think more highly of himself was offered to him on a silver platter, and what he did is this. He denied it, and the reason why is John refused to be viewed higher than his calling. Write that down if you want. John refused to be viewed as higher than his calling. You know what that, that, that is? That's humility. He wasn't going to elevate himself higher than where God had stationed him. Dude, I, I can remember as an assistant pastor, so often I would preach, and I'm not patting myself on the back because first service, I was struggling preaching. I forgot my hearing aid battery, and I've gotten so used to hearing myself, it's like a monitor. It really is. And I didn't have my monitor, and I was just thrown off. I know it sounds bad. I was struggling preaching. But I preached fire one time back home. Preached fire. It was so good. It was, it was really good. And I had this person come up to me and said, when are you going to get your own church? As if being an associate is a lesser call. And I'm like, do you want me to leave? Don't you like my ministry? You know. And, and then, no, it's just, I, I figured by now, I mean, I was an associate for, uh, I don't know how long, 13, 14 years, something like that. You know, I, like, like between two churches. I felt content as an associate. I wasn't going to see myself higher than the calling God had given me because I know when you operate in the calling, you also operate in the giftings. And so with it, I just, you know, I just took it kind of like, you're ignorant. I didn't say that, but that's how I thought. I was like, you're just ignorant. That means you don't understand. You don't know. And, and it was years later that God brought me here because it was a time for the calling to be received, you know. But when you look at this, he didn't see himself higher than his calling. That's humility. So they say to him in verse 22, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who have sent us. What do you say about yourself? And I love what he says. He goes, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make the way of the Lord straight, as the prophet Isaiah said. Can I read it from Isaiah? I'm doing, I want to do cross-references today. We don't do that all often, but I want to today. Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. This is what he was referring to. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's a promise we ought to get shouting about. That's good right there. Now, I'm preparing a way that when Jesus shows up, and guess what? He has shown up in your life, and some of those mountains you've been dealing with have been made low. And some of that uneven ground that keeps tripping you up and you keep stumbling on, God is working that stuff out. And the glory of Jesus will be revealed in this house. Amen? Because Jesus is in this house. So he goes back, and I love it. He goes back and he declares exactly who he is. Why did God send a messenger ahead of his son Jesus? Why? It was cultural. In that, in that time, if you were a king and you were going to an area, you would say, prepare the way. And the people, they would begin to take the road, and they would begin to remove things. They'd begin to level things out. That messenger would go ahead and say, the king's coming. And instantly, the people would repair their part of the local road on which the king would travel. 
And also, they would be ready to welcome the king. Like they, it's, the king is coming, and they're preparing. See, in John, and his humility, he spoke lofty of himself. I love this. He knew what his mission was. He was preparing the way. And up here, when they asked him if you're Elijah or Moses, he's not going to talk too highly of himself, but he had no problem claiming who he was and the call of God on his life. And to me, this sounds cocky. I am the voice. The voice. The voice. I'm the voice of one call, crying out in the wilderness. I mean, that's, a, that's authoritative. I am what Isaiah says. I, I'm that verse fulfilled. Are you kidding me? How prideful. No, it's not prideful. John also refused to be viewed lower than his calling. I love that. I'm not going to be viewed higher or lower than the call that God has on me. And that can play out in our own personal lives because my dad was here in the first service and I I know it blessed him because I said, dad, I said, you used to preach. And when you would preach, you would say, I hate it when people say I'm a sinner saved by grace. He goes, I hate it. You were a sinner saved by grace. But right now, you're the righteousness of God. You're the head and not the tail. You're above and not beneath. And I looked over at my dad and said, that's good. Is that good? <laughs> oh, man. Yes, I get it. We're sinners saved by grace. But no, the station I have is not what I have in the natural. The station I have in Christ, the calling, I cannot look less than the call of God in my life is. Neither can you. You're saved God has saved you. That has changed everything. Yeah, I really think sometimes when you deal with sins and struggles, it helps to come from the position of strength, not weakness. I sure know that's how it works in a fight. Amen? I want the high ground. Amen? And so so it's the same way. Don't look low at the calling God has already called you to live high in. Man, remind the enemy, when you get that temptation, that's not who I am anymore. I have humbly submitted myself before Jesus. That's not who I am anymore. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so he just clearly, man, he lays that out strong. That he wasn't going to be viewed lower than his calling either. And so looking at John, I really see a lesson in humility as we look at this passage of Scripture And I want to look for a second at the power and platform of humility, all right? The power and platform of humility. I'm going to further take the the two things I said about John and not looking higher or lower and massage those a little bit. And I want to read this that I, I, I wrote. Humility is not claiming anything more than who you are, but it's also not claiming one thing less than who you are. That's humility. And in our day and age, humility's got a bad rap, you know, because humility is looked at like you're weak. No, no, no. When you're humble, when you have humility, you are meek, not weak. Meek is strength in restraint. It is power in restraint. And that doesn't mean you don't walk with confidence, that you don't walk strong, but you're walking with confidence in the Lord. You're walking with strength in him and with character. And so humility, when it comes to it, it's made up of three things. There's no notes up here on this for this. So get your paper out, write this down. When you look at humility, there's three parts to it. The first is accurate self-perception. Accurate self-perception. And I'm not going to preach on these long. I think I'm going to do a series regarding some of this um, in, in October, to be quite honest. Accurate self-perception. And what that means is that humility values knowing who you are. 
When it comes to your self-perception, it's important to know who you are, both your strengths and your weaknesses. And it's super humble to submit your weaknesses to Jesus. You know? But sometimes we're not humble enough to get the help or to ask even the Lord or ask a friend. or No, no, when you have a personal, when you have that self-accurate perception, it'll cause you to humble yourself and have, ask for help. When you have that accurate self-perception, perception, like I said, you'll live in life confidently. The second thing is modest self-portrayal. Modest self-portrayal. And that's kind of the opposite. Humility values knowing who you're not. I'm not going to look at myself as more than I am, but I'm also not going to look less, but I'm not going to look at myself as more than I am. There's things for me to learn. There's things for me to grow in. There's things, you know, and like I t- I've joked with you before, I, I, once in a while somebody will, you know, have a really bad perception of Scripture and it's ruining their lives and bad perception of discernment, and, and, but this is how, you know, I perceive. And I'm like, that, you have the right to be wrong. It's okay, you know. Let's look what the Word says. Let's just see and do the Word. Humble ourselves before the Lord. Pastor Blair, my pastor for years, he would say there's two jobs, The Bible says if you'll humble yourself, God will lift you up. Two jobs. You humble, he lifts. What happens if you lift? Come on now. That's good preaching, Pastor Blair. I know you're watching today. I love you. Yeah, that's, that, oh, yeah, exactly. So that idea of a self-betrayal, really just knowing what you're not, and that's okay. That's a good place to start for growth. Third thing is other-oriented relational stance. Other-oriented relational stance. Humility values others over self. That's just the nature of humility. You're, You're putting other people over your own self, all right? So when you can understand humility and begin to embrace a hunger to live a humble life, man, it creates a powerful platform for God to use you. John was humble, accurately humble, and it created an incredible platform for him to be the one to point to Jesus and prepare the way for Jesus. And I believe it's the same way in our life. When you embrace humility, it creates a powerful understanding in your home. When you walk with humility and you wake up, man, it causes you to live different with your spouse. Live different with your kids. Live different with your workmates. Live different with your clients when you're coming from a place of humility. And and I want to give you a little story. Y'all know I like history, right? I want to show you the power and platform of humility in real time. And so often when it comes to life, we'll see somebody that's been kind of elevated. And it's like, wow, look, look what they've done. But you don't know what has happened to the humble hearts that have prepared the way for that person to have that platform. You, you don't know the little stories, the little sacrifices, the little pains and struggles that it took place for people to have to get that one person to have that platform. And one of the most powerful examples of the power and platform of humility can be seen by looking at the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. And I told you, I just love history. We, we can see Martin Luther King Jr. as the central figure of the civil rights movement, but way long before his I Have a Dream speech in Washington on August the 28th, 1963. Everybody say August the 28th. There's a reason for it. Long before that day, the path was being paved for a powerful civil rights movement that would begin to change things in America. And, and what happened, I almost hate 
to tell this part of the story. It's so heartbreaking. This young boy named Emmett Till, he's 14 years old, and he's from Chicago, and he goes to visit his family in Mississippi, and, and basically he's accused of offending a white woman in her family grocery store, and they brutally beat, terrorize, lynch, and drown this young boy, 14 years old, that's a, that's a young, that's a boy. And so in light of Emmett Till's murder on August 28th, 1955, do you see why that day was picked for the Washington March? In light of his murder, eight years later, a man has a platform to be able to profess, I have a dream. And it just doesn't end there. Now, one nice, one nice, one caveat to make your hearts go, oh, okay, in 2008, Carolyn Bryant, the one that was doing the accusing, she lied on the trial, and she confessed that in 2008, that she had lied about the verbal and the physical things that she said on the tri- at the trial that exonerated her husband and, and the co-murder of the crime completely. They even confessed later in a magazine, they confessed to it. But because of double jeopardy, they wouldn't even get charged. And that's... Mm. That's ridiculous. Brian is quoted by Tyson, that's the author of the, of the article, the, the interview, as saying nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. This was in 2008 when the interview happened. And, and I want to show you another step of humility that, that began to bring forth the power of the civil rights movement in the, in the 60s especially. And, and this was Emmett's mom. Emmett, Emmett's mom, they had already dug a hole, buried that boy before the end of the first day. They wanted to bury the evidence. And Emmett's mom, they, they had a whole big plan. They got the boy back to Chicago. And when they got him back to Chicago, he was under the assumption that if he would come, that they would get him there, that he, they would never open the casket. But she's like, uh-uh, mama's seen her baby. And brutal. You have to, if you ever see the pictures, it's just horrible. And then her heart People have to see this. So a grieving mother who just wants to grieve, but she feels the impetus that I've got to let people see what's going on. There is a national repentance that needs to take place, and a challenge to repentance needs to be received. Yes, I'm likening what's going on a little bit with John preceding Jesus. And these people, that before you really see that, that forethought person, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., before you see that, there were so many things happening behind the scenes for years. And so the open coffin funeral held by Emmett's mother, Mamie Till Bradley, exposed the world to more than her son Emmett Till's bloated, mutilated body ever could. Her decision focused attention not only on U.S. racism and the barbarism of lynching, but also on the limitations and vulnerabilities of American democracy. So a mother submits the desire to just put her boy in the ground, but realizes there's a, a message that has to go out. And this message begins to go out. Now, how many's heard of Rosa Parks? Anybody? Yes, everybody has. It's just three months after Emmett Till's murder on December 1st, 1955, in Montgomery, Alabama, that she is told by the bus driver to get to the back of the bus. The four seats for the color people, you can't sit here. And man, I tell you, in her own words, here's what she said. I thought of Emmett Till 
a 14-year-old African-American who was lynched in Mississippi after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store whose killers were tried and acquitted. And I just couldn't go back. That was the next spark. That spark sparked the Montgomery bus boycott. And all these people are forerunners and voices in the wilderness of prejudice and racism, and they're paving the way for men like Fred Shuttlesworth and Ralph Abernathy, and yes, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Those men, they founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and that conference began to make a difference as well. On December 25th, 1956, somebody put 16 sticks of dynamite outside Fred Shuttlesworth's home and exploded it. He barely escaped with his life. I don't even want to just say Fred. Pastor Fred Shuttlesworth. Pastor Fred. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference they adopted a motto to underscore its commitment to nonviolence. Does that sound like humility? Yes. Not one hair of one head of one person should be harmed. And when they said it, they're speaking of both black and white as they walked out a humble, a type of mission that was humble. Now, when you think of Pastor Shuttlesworth, what's crazy about him is we think of Martin Luther King Jr. all ready to just go for this. But at that time, Pastor Fred, he had to really speak into young Pastor Martin's life. And he wasn't shy about it either in asking Pastor King to take a more active role in leading the fight against segregation and warning that the history would not look kindly on him if he just gave flowery speeches but did not act on them. You know, I'm not trying to belittle. He's 25 years old when all this stuff started. He's a young guy, wet behind the ears. But you know, thank God he had somebody that knew their calling, not high enough, not low enough, but enough to speak to this young firebrand and say, you know what, your words are good, but we need your actions too. And that led Martin to go to Birmingham or to Montgomery for the bus boycott to rally that. Another part of the team was Pastor Ralph Abernathy. Did you hear me say pastor? Pastor, pastor, pastor. The civil rights movement wasn't a secular sociological movement. It was a Christian movement. Come on, somebody. That's what it was. That blows my mind. It's pastor, pastor, pastor. Like March after March after March started in the church, and they go out the doors of the church. I'm sorry. I'm getting into a sermon. I'm going to preach in a few weeks. But they go out the doors of the church to be beaten and eaten, bit by dogs and, and shot down by fire hoses. Children. I'll get to that. I got, I got a sermon I, ooh, I'm, I'm just brewing on that I want us to be the light of Jesus in the world. I cannot wait to preach it. But Ralph Abernathy, Pastor Abernathy, he was a close friend of, men, of Mar- Pastor Martin, and they established you know, the boycott, and they also established the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was founded right here in Atlanta in 1957. But out of that, there was this platform of humility that came out of these students In Greensboro, North Carolina, they would just go by the dozens and sit at tables. You've heard of the sit-in movement. That's all. Does that sound humble? Yeah. They would do trainings to be sure when they were beaten that they wouldn't rise back up and fight back. Oh, the tendency to want to. But they felt that that nonviolent posture of humility would make a difference. And then finally, in 1963, Martin Luther King, like John the Baptist of old, called a nation to repentance in his I Have a Dream speech. 
All of this action, it angered the powers at be at the time, much like the Pharisees were angered by John, but the power of their humility led to a platform that began to challenge and change our world. Praise the Lord. Amen? Yes, it did. And so we can see all these people walking out in humility, and it's building a platform. Why? Because God is sending the voice. God is sending the one that's going to speak. God's sending the one to do a great thing. And so John the Baptist is that man, that voice crying in the wilderness, making the way straight. He's just preparing a... I'm sticking again. Literally. Do you see my lip? I am not joking. That is stuck, y'all. Hmm. I can't wait till tonight. All right. I don't know what causes that. It's just a weird thing. Um, um, so John's the voice crying in the wilderness. Um, um, and so I want to just take a second. Go to John 1.24. I want to see what this wild man was hollering about. Okay, if he's crying out in the wilderness, what, what's, his, what's he hollering about? It says, now they had sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. I mean, John knew what his mission was. He knew it was a cleansing for repentance. He knew that. And so they're wanting to know, well, why are you baptizing? Part of that was, you haven't been given the authority to baptize. You're thinking too high or something. No, no, no. He knew his authority was coming from the Lord. You haven't been given the station. You're not a priest. It's not your role to baptize. But God gave him a mandate And in all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, it shows the mandate. In those days, John 3, Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the mission. Turn. Our religious ways, our lifestyles, things that we are outside the word of God, the will of God, the focus, the desire of God, it's time to turn, is John's message and go the other way. Mark 1, 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew and Mark tell of his mission to call people to repentance, but check this out. Luke, the next one, it tells why they needed to repent and the message he had that flew in the face of the religious-minded of the day. I mean, they were religious in mind, but not faithful in action. And here's what it says in Luke 7 through 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. I believe he's looking right at the Pharisees. Because he knows the hearts of those that are coming to him for repentance. You You brood of vipers. Man, no wonder these guys are mad and years later people took his head off, you know. Oh, I jumped to the end of the story. Sorry about that. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Um. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Remember that Isaiah, uh, uh, Malachi passage? I mean, this is all kind of coming together. Then he says to them, it's not just about baptism, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So I'm not just going to get you wet, and now you're cleansed spiritually, and then you just go back doing what you want. No, no, no. Bear fruits of keeping repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's saying this to the religious. You're you're leaning into your faith, but you have corrupted it. God didn't corrupt it, but you've corrupted it. You have made the faith of the Torah, the Old Testament, you have turned it into your own religion. 
We do that all the time. We don't humble ourselves and say, well, that's just what the word says. I don't have a choice. That's what the word says. I've told you guys last spring, there are things in the Bible right now I don't want it to say. Literally, I don't want it to be true. Man, I spent six months in the Word and in books and reading and studying. I came out of it saying it's true, and I can't, I can't, I gotta, I cannot live any way different. I can't call what's what any way different. And that's what's going on here. These people are saying, I'm gonna lean back into the old teachings. And the old, yeah, but you've corrupted those old things and have turned it into a religion for your own sake, not for the glory of God. So he challenges them to fruits of repentance. And I love it. He, he challenges all these walks of life that are being baptized to live it out. In, in the next portion of Scripture, we don't have it up, but they ask, what shall we then do? It's a great question. We've been baptized. We're cleansed. Or maybe some of them were asking before they were baptized. What are we supposed to do next? And he was telling them what to do. And he begins, I believe, as he's preaching, to look around, and he's seeing people. And he looks over here at somebody that, that's a tax collector. You know what, tax collector? What then shall we do? I'll tell you what you should do. You need to stop collecting more than you're due. In other words, change your actions and everything. There, there, there's, there's there a soldier. Looks to the soldier. Don't extort money through threat and violence. Be content with your salary. Stop it. You know, I, I love this one. He 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 looks to the um um. He, I, he sees somebody with like a lot of clothes. You know, you can tell there's money. Got a lot of clothes on. Hey, if you have extra clothes and extra food, share that. It's mine. It's my stuff. Not to the repentant heart. It's not. It's his stuff. God says tithe. Share that. It's how the kingdom of God has been built from the beginning. It's through the giving of the saints of God. And so he looks to this, are you, is your heart turned or did you just get wet? Because if your heart's turned, you're going to share. See? So the takeaway question in this is what then shall we do? Everybody say, what then shall we do? You know what that is? What then shall we do? That is the request of the repentant. Well, let that sit on you. What then shall we do? That's the request of the repentant. Unrepentant don't ask that question. Unrepentant don't care what to do next. They tell God, what they, they tell their preacher, well, this is what I'm going to do. Well, God's word says this is how you're supposed to live. I know, but this is what I'm going to do. There's no power to that. There's power to repentance. The Bible says when you walk in repentance, seasons of refreshing come. You want to know why you're miserable? Because you're in sin. And the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. And, and here's the thing about that. Pastors in sin too. And it's hard when you're walking out sin. The transgressor. It sounds like I'm going, you evil transgressor. No, no, it just means progress, transgress, regress. That's what I mean. You're just not going. No, progress. I'm going the wrong way. Man, I'm going to turn completely and go the way God has me going. Or I'm trying to go the right way, but I just keep dipping. I just keep dipping. I just keep dipping. You dip enough, you're going to run out of sauce. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> have no clue. Not a clue. I'm really hungry, people. <laughs> I'm looking forward to tonight. Shut up. 
<laughs> I get choked. All right. So, <laughs> um, so I want to throw something out with this repentance thing because I want to train your spirit and your flesh to be quick to turn. Okay, I want to train your spirit and your flesh to be quick to follow what God's saying. And I'm going to throw this out. If you're here, I won't not have you raise your hand. If you are a believer, that means you have professed faith in Jesus. You believe he's Lord of your life. He's your Savior, okay? And I would venture to say if I had you raise your hands, a lot of people would raise your hands, right? If that's you. And I would ask, are you going to go to heaven? You'd be like, 100%. And you should feel that confidence. You don't have to be perfect to go to heaven. Just forgiven, right? You should feel that confidence. But there is something in the Pentecostal church, which I would say is more of our, our bent, is the Pentecostal church. There is something about us that do not put emphasis on water baptism. I can't preach about John the Immerser without covering this, right? There's something about us. Baptist churches, it, it kind of almost in a Baptist church equates, if you don't confess with your mouth and get baptized, you're not saved. Well, the thief on the cross counterdicts that. Because he gives his heart to Christ, and Christ says, today you'll see me in paradise. I don't remember seeing any water. Amen? Only place in Scripture, though. It's hard to make theology out of one little thing, okay? But all throughout Scripture, the more normative thing, I'll just be honest, is people get saved and baptized. I'm not going to say the normative thing. Every time. Every time. So when the early, every single disciple is baptized, We'll see that a little bit next week. In the early church, the book of Acts, every single person preached to that gets saved gets baptized. Ephesians 19, the, the, the disciples in Ephesus, baptized. You know? The, 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 the people that got saved in Samaria when Philip went up there and he called on James and John to come up here. Why? Because they want to lay hands on them and baptize them. Over and over and over. House of Cornelius, a, a Gentile, not a Jew. They're preaching. Peter's preaching the word of God. Holy Ghost falls upon them. God does a powerful work, and they profess faith in Christ, and they got the order all out. They, they, they got saved, filled the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, and baptized all in the same day. That sounds like church. That's awesome. But they, and his whole household got baptized. So what are you getting at, Ross? What I'm getting at is this. If you have professed faith in Christ and have not been baptized, you are going to heaven, but you are going there very disobedient. And I would call yourself, I would just say, trying to be kind. I would, I would question that you're a disciple. I'm not, I'm not saying I would question that you're a Christian. I would question that you're a disciple. And the only reason why is because you've been ignorant of this. So I give you a bye. But you can't be ignorant no more. You're informed now. Amen? So, so um, um, I told you guys at the beginning, a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I said in 2022, I'm going to time and time again say this is what Christians do. That's what Christians do. This is what Christians do. And I'm not just pulling it out of my hat. I'm always going to use the scripture. And I'll just say very strong with you all today. Christians get baptized. But pastor, I am waiting for my spouse to get saved so that then I can be baptized. Show me it in the scripture. Right? Pastor, I just don't feel spiritual enough yet. I'm waiting for some growth. Philip ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch. As soon as that man got saved, going down the road, he says, what hinders me from being baptized? And, and just some water. And he's like, that puddle will do. 
I mean, it wasn't a puddle. It was enough to get immersed, but let's do it, you know, instantly. So here's what I want you to do. I really want to challenge you that on the 13th, if you've never been baptized, get baptized. But pastor, I don't, I feel weird being out in front of people. Okay, I get that. That's what it's for. Do you see how it trains who you are? Because it's a call. It's your first act of works. It's your first act of obedience after salvation. It's kind of how scripture shows it. And if you are saying to your, you're like, man, I love Jesus. Okay, I'm gonna get baptized. If you're willing to get before people and in some water, that's weird, you know? The next thing God tells you to do, you'll do. Because you're training yourself to be a disciple, which is a follower of Christ. And I've told you this before. There's a doorway that leads into what's next for your life, and it swings on the hinges of obedience. I have seen people go through the doorway of obedience, that, 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 that doorway, and walk into healing and signs and wonders and miracles and baptism of the Holy Spirit and the next thing God has for them in their life. And not just by, the, by baptism, that's part of it, but just by making a decision that I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to repent. I'm going to humble myself and do what God wants me to do. But, but pastor, you know, I don't want to talk. I want to be, we won't make you talk. And this isn't me doing this because I want us to have 30 people getting baptized so I can go, we had 30 people. Get. You know what I'll tell you right now? I will not post how many people got baptized. I don't care. I just want to pastor a bunch of crazy radical disciples that say, hey, if God says, what should I do next? I say, what should I do next? And when he tells me what next is, I do it. Because then the fruits of the kingdom start to manifest. And God starts to use us as a church. God starts to use us as individuals to change our family and change our homes. Don't talk to your wife like that before anymore. Okay, Jesus, I won't talk to my wife like that. But it's hard, Jesus. It's hard. Stop talking to her like, okay, I won't, Jesus. I won't talk to her like that. I'll talk to somebody and get some help. Or whatever the issue is. I'm just saying, it gets easier because you're training who you are to be a disciple of Christ. I'm going to finish. And so, repentance, as we look at this, I'm way down here. So only national, oh, the road that the Messiah would travel was the road into the hearts and lives of his people. Only national repentance could prepare the way for that spiritual journey. And John had come to prepare the nation for the coming of Messiah. He was repairing their part of the local road on which the king would travel. Repentance repairs your worn out heart. He, he was repairing and removing all the obstacles from the road. Repentance calls us to remove those things that stand as a barrier to Jesus. He, he was saying, be ready to welcome him. A repentant heart prepares the heart to receive the glory of the Lord and the person of Christ. And I'm going to close with this story. 20 years ago plus, a man falls into my arms weeping just bawling his eyes out because he just discovered that his wife had had an affair and she had had an affair 16 years prior. And it came to, and she swore off. It was a two-year affair and for a year, everything was good. But now it's 15 years into the future and he finds out she's been running a secret affair with the same guy for 15 years. That's like another marriage. I mean, he falls in my arm. He's weeping. I mean, it's just a mess, but... The Lord spoke into his heart through it. Love her like I've loved the church. And so he began to show her, this will be familiar from last week, he began to show her grace upon grace. Her shame made her want to run. But the grace upon grace on her life began to change her heart as she turned from allowing her heart to be ruled by the interests and desires that she had, and she gave her life fully to Jesus. Check this. That couple now is in their 70s. They were middle-aged when that happened. They're in their 70s now. Strong marriage. 
mean, that's 20 plus years. And, 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 and the, 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 I'm loving that through repentance, restoration came to their marriage. But not only restoration for them, it brought a heritage. People see them as quality people. People see them as quality believers that know the word and can make an impact. You know, so They don't see her as the woman who. Do you know why? Because she isn't that woman any longer. Because of repentance. But she could have hardened her heart in that moment. And that heritage would have been lost. And you know how those things, those relationships go. She wouldn't have a man. She wouldn't have that man at least in her 70s. She got a good man. A mighty good man. Okay. She does. I'm starting to get tired and silly. So let me, let me say this. It's my favorite writer, A.W. Tozer. In every Christian's heart, there's a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among believers today. We want to be saved, but insist Christ do all the dying. Man. And so they asked him, why are you baptizing if you're not Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Whose authority? Whose calling? He was baptizing because he was called by God to do it. John answered, I baptize with water. And they understood that meant for repentance. But among you stands one you do not even know. The Greek just means a force. There's a force in the midst. There's power in the midst. There's an anointing in the midst that you don't even know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. It's tragic that the promised Messiah could be right there with them and not be recognized by those spiritual leaders. The self-inflicted blindness that accompanies religious pride makes all opposing alternatives unacceptable. They didn't know him because they were expecting someone quite different. And in their eagerness to expose false messiahs, they ignored the true messiah. Literally, their pride was the exact opposite of the humility that John showed. And oh, did John show humility all the way up to the end. When he said about the strap on the sandal, a disciple of a teacher wouldn't even be permitted to undo that strap. Only a slave could undo that strap. A disciple would do everything else but would not undo that strap on his teacher's sandal. And so that's John saying, I know who I am. I'm baptizing for repentance. I'm called of God. But you know what? I'm not even worried. I'm just a slave. That's all I am to Jesus. And that's how we need to be slaves, saying, what shall we do next? What do you have for us? And when you say it, I'll do it. What's beautiful about being a slave to God in the epistles, I can't recall where, 100% 100% sure it's there. But in the epistles, it says that if you're a slave of God, you're no longer a slave, but now you're a son. Some of us feel far from God because we won't become sons, because we won't become slaves, because we won't become repentant. There's a power to repentance. There's a power to humility, and it becomes a platform. And the reason why that's powerful is because the next verse, which will be next Sunday, John says, Behold the Lamb who comes to take the sins of the world away. That platform for us, for humility and power, literally becomes what paves the way for people to see Jesus. That's in our home. It's in our workplaces. It's a church. Wherever you go, walk in that. Amen? Give God some praise. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. For more information, please check out www.momentumchurch.tv.